Good morning. It's always a privilege for my wife and I to be here. We love this church. This church has stood behind us in our ministry for many, many years um, with generous support, sending teams, always an encouragement. And it's a great um, joy to hear that you're going to have a catered Italian meal. Um, I mean, that's been going on for ever since the church started, I think. It's the only church in the world that has that requirement. If it's going to be a catered meal, it has to be Italian. And I think that's the way God wants it. So. My wife and I are, are very thankful for this church and your support and want to express that publicly. Um, we couldn't do what we do if it were not for churches like this church. And your church has been exceptionally generous towards us. And we are very, very thankful. Uh, God has us in a different stage in our life and ministry right now. We came back from Peru in 2013, uh, several reasons. Um, but since that time, uh, my mother-in-law now lives with us. My wife cares for her mother who has dementia. We feel it's a calling from God at this point in our lives for Kay to, to have that responsibility. But it means that we're, we're not going back to Peru. We don't live in Latin America, but we still minister um, to Latin American countries, a variety of countries, and have the privilege of being able to travel um, and uh, train pastors and, and Christian leaders throughout the uh, Spanish-speaking world. Um, so thank you for being a part of that. Thank you. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a vital need, and you make it possible, and we're very thankful for that. Will you join with, join with me in prayer one more time before we look at God's Word? Father, thank you for what we have sung this morning, for the truth that you are God, there is no other, and you are good. How we praise you for the truth of your resurrection, Lord Jesus, and what that means for us. And right now we pray as we've gathered to hear your word that you would speak that it would not be the opinions of a foolish and sinful man, but rather the very word of God coming through these stammering lips. Speak as only you can speak. Glorify your name and change our lives. That's what we desire, O oh God. Please fill me with your spirit and open every heart and mind this morning so that we might receive from you what you want to say. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Humankind was created to be a reflection of God on earth. We are His image, placed in His earthly temple to represent Him in all of life. But something happened. Something catastrophic occurred. Sin entered the world and distorted completely the image of God that we are. And it has left us often as nothing more than a gross caricature of what we were intended to be. Sin has ruined, it has affected, it has twisted every part of our being. There is nothing in us that has not been affected by the distorting influence of sin. But, fortunately... Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came and gave his life 
not only for our sins, what a wonderful thing that is, but even beyond that, he gave his life so that we who are the image of God could be reshaped so that one day we could take on the purity and the uh, the wonder of that glorious image of Jesus, Jesus Christ. And that's what God is doing. God is in a process of transformation in our lives. It's a long, slow, arduous, painful process that God works out in our lives, throughout our lives, ultimately reaching the goal of, of reconforming us, reshaping us, after the image, that glorious image of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about one aspect of that process of transformation, the aspect known as the renewal of our minds. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the, I'd say the key passage, has talked about the wonderful mercies of God for 11 chapters, how God has demonstrated through so many means that he is a God of mercy. And then he comes to chapter 12 all the way to the end of the book and he's going to give us what are some practical implications of the fact that we are recipients of God's mercy. How should it affect our lives? And one of those implications is the whole matter of the renewal of our minds. Paul says in Romans 12:2, Do not conform to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul's calling the Roman Christians, and by extension all Christians, to experience a radical reshaping of their, their, their way of thinking. He wants to, he wants to call the, 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 the Roman Christians and us, by extension, to a whole new system of seeing life, of thinking about life. That's, that's the really the, the, the point of this particular passage. It's important before we get into it to, to understand what Paul means when he says the renewal of the mind. What's the mind? We have all kinds of ideas what the mind might be, but in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, the mind is not referring to... A, to a, a few thoughts or ideas or convictions that we have. It's talking about the whole system of thinking that controls our life. It's our mentality. It's the predominant attitude that governs how we live. Paul is saying that we need a reshaping of our structures of thought. It's great to have a few new convictions, to get rid of a few bad beliefs and adopt some new good beliefs, but that's not really what Paul has in mind. Paul's talking about something far more all-encompassing, far more global, far, far more profound. He's saying that what we need is a whole new system of thinking. We need a new chip. We need um, a reformatting of the hard drive of our lives. That's what we need. And so it's something far more radical than simply um, changing a few convictions, ideas, or opinions. So there's three things that I want us to look at this morning in terms of this transformation of our minds. First of all, what is the goal of, our, of the transformation of our mind? Secondly, 
What is the obstacle to the transformation of our mind? And finally, what's the process in this transforming of our minds? How is God doing it? Begin then with the goal of the transformation of our mind. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, here's the goal. Paul is saying, look at all of that is leading us to the goal. Here's the goal. Then he says, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. What's the goal of the transformation of our mind? Paul says it's very simply, the goal of the transformation of our mind is that we have the capacity to discern what is the will of God. Now, when he's talking about the will of God here, he's not talking about knowing something about the future, right? We always say, well, I wonder what the will of God is, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the tribulation or the, the millennium and all that. No, that's not what he has in mind. Paul, when he's talking about the, the, the will of God in this particular passage, he has one very simple focus in mind. What is the life that pleases God? How can I live in such a way that I live consistently with what God wants for me? It's an ethical thing. Paul says basically this. One of the reasons why there is so much confusion in the world, even among Christians, regarding how is it that I should live in order to make God happy, to please Him, one of the reasons is because I'm more conformed to this age than I am to the will of God. Conformity to this age, says Paul, makes puts a cloud over the whole idea of what is the will of God. The solution and the goal, the purpose, there's a real fine line in the scriptures between purpose and goal. What, what Paul is saying is the the what we're going towards, what the, the, the final goal is, is that we would have the capacity to discern the will of God in our lives. We would know how it is that God wants us to live. But in order to do that, we have to have a renovation, a renewal of our whole system of thinking. Otherwise, it's always going to be cloudy. There's always going to be confusion. And that's why many of us live in confusion today. That's the goal. Second, what's the obstacle? What is the obstacle? Well, there's lots of obstacles, right? But Paul mentions one obstacle, and it's different than what we normally think of when we think of an obstacle uh, in terms of this whole matter of um, the renewal of the mind. What's the obstacle? Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this age. Some versions say to this world. The, the word literally is age. And I think age is a better translation because it gives an idea of time. And that's really part of what Paul wants to emphasize in this particular passage. Do not, be, do not conform to the pattern of this age. There's a concern uh, behind, if, if I'm stuttering a little bit, it's because the only words coming to my mind are Spanish words because I usually teach all of this in Spanish and not in English, and so I'm struggling a little bit to find the English word. Excuse me. There is a concern behind Paul's prohibition in this passage. There is uh, a deep 
preocupación, a deep concern in his mind about um, what's going on in the life of the church. His concern is basically this. The question, what is it? Or who is it? Who is it or what is the primary shaping influence in your life? What is the primary force that's determining the way that you think about life, the way that you think about the will of God, the way that you think about everything that you think about and everything that you do? What is that primary shaping influence in your life? That's the concern that Paul has. Because Paul is aware of the fact that for many of these Christians to whom he's writing, the primary shaping influence is not the will of God. It's this present age. And that has Paul very worried. And I would say that it's true of us as well. That if we were to ask the question sincerely, just opening our hearts and being honest and transparent with one another, if you were to ask yourself, what is the primary shaping influence determining the way you see life? Many of us would have to say, I wish it were the will of God, but I know it's not. It is, as Paul says in this passage, this present age. In order to understand the significance of what Paul is saying or what's behind what Paul is saying, we have to understand what this present age means because we don't tend to talk in this way. This present age, obviously, at the most fundamental level, is referring to a marker of time, right? This present age, this moment in history, that, that's what Paul's primarily referring to. Uh, the Jews viewed history as a line, a straight line, going from, from creation all the way to the end of history. But they saw this line as divided into two stages, two periods, if we could see it that way. The first period was called guess what? This present age. And the second stage was called the age to come. The Jews viewed history that way, as this one straight line with two periods. The first period was the period in which they lived. It went from the fall of man all the way until an event that they were waiting for. That is the coming of the Messiah. When the Messiah would come, he would put an end to this present evil age. And they called it an evil age. It was an age of darkness, of persecution, of suffering, of injustice. And they longed for the coming of Messiah because he would mark the end of this present age and he would inaugurate the glorious age to come. And that was the hope of Israel. For example, there's a document that was well known in the first century. It was written probably right at the end of the first century. But the thoughts in this passage were well known by Jews throughout the first century and before. It's a passage that probably most of you read regularly in your devotions. It's 4th Esdras. 4th Esdras says this, This present world is not the end. The full glory does not abide in it. But the day of judgment will be the end of this age and the beginning of the immortal age to come. 
in which corruption has passed away, sinful indulgence has come to an end, unbelief has been cut off, and righteousness has increased and truth has appeared. This was a, a document well known in the first century. At least the ideas behind it were well known. People, this is how they thought. Do, do you sense in that passage the longing that they have that God would intervene in history and would put an end to this age and bring in the age to come? That's the idea. We see the same thing in the New Testament. Paul says in, in Ephesians 1.21 that Christ is seated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Jesus himself in Matthew 12.32 says, Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So the idea of this age being the present stage in history was something that all Jews believed in. But Paul does something incredible, and Paul does it all through the Scriptures. Paul takes this concept of time, a stage in history, and he personifies it. You know what personification is? Those of you who studied English in school, that was my major, believe it or not. I can't speak it, but I studied it. Personification is when it's a figure of speech where the author takes a concept, um, something that is not alive, something that is not a person, and he gives it, he attributes to it characteristics of a person. Paul does it all the time. Sin, right? He takes the concept of sin. Sin is not a person. It's not something alive. But he turns it into a a force, a beast, an animal, a, a king that wants to enslave us. He does the same thing with this present age. In Galatians 1.4, he talks about this present age as having taken prisoners, enslaving us. It's like a despotic king who's angry, who's evil, and he's, he's gone out and he's enslaved a whole population of people. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says that this present age has its own God. And what does this God of this present age do? He blinds the minds of unbelievers so that they can't receive, see the glory of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 2 says that this present age has its own wisdom. So what's the point? The point is Paul takes this moment in history, this stage in history, and he completely changes it into a despotic evil force, a king that's looking to enslave you, It's looking to take control of your life. It's trying to captivate your heart and your mind and control the way that you live and the way that you think. And Paul says, don't let it. This present age in which we live, this present moment in history is governed by a force, a sin-saturated, God-hating, Satan-inspired force. It's not passive, it's active. And its purpose is, Its goal is to captivate your heart and mind and take control of you, control the way that you think. Paul says, do not let this present age be the determining force in how you live and how you think. That's what this present age is. Now, what is this present age trying to do? Paul says, clearly, conform us to its image. It wants to break the image of God that we are and reformat us, reform us so that we are 
copies of this present age, of this way of thinking and living instead of the kingdom of God way of living and thinking. Third, how is it trying to do that? This is where it gets a little bit complex. This present age has a whole host of strategies, a whole host of measures that it uses. And as you know, our enemy is incredibly astute. He's got a variety of strategies, but most of them are camouflaged with the disguises of everyday events. Events that seem harmless, that seem neutral, but which in, a, in reality, they exercise a formative influence over our thinking and they seek to, seek to shape us in definitive ways. Because these activities that the, this age uses to conform us to its image are so natural to us that we're often blinded to the forces behind them and the dangers they present. There's a multitude of examples. If I had time, I would spend all my time just on this, but I don't have time to do that. So let me give you one example. Let me give you what I would say is the most powerful shaping influence in the history of the world, the Internet. But let me, let me narrow that down to one application, the smartphone. Now, the smartphone has brought us untold blessings. I mean, who would have thought 25 years ago that we could accomplish what we accomplish through the use of this little device? You know the benefits of it because every one of you has them. In fact, 90% of the world's population today has use of a smartphone. Yo, yo, I travel, I travel to some of the poorest countries. I go to Nicaragua, I, I've been to Cuba, um, I've been to, to places in Peru. I mean, they don't have enough food to eat, but they all have a smartphone. I was walking down the streets of Lima, Peru one day, and I saw a man begging for food while he talked on his smartphone. Tell me, what's wrong with this picture? 90% of the world's population has use of a smartphone. Now here's the question, the million dollar question. Is the use of this little device that has brought us untold benefits and blessings, is the use of this little device neutral? And the answer is absolutely not. I'm not saying we should throw it away. I'm not saying we shouldn't use it. I'm asking the question, is its use neutral? And the answer is absolutely not. And the proof of this, there's several proofs. One of them is, do you know the average number of times a day that the average person checks their smartphone? 150. If 90% of the people in the world use this, and the average person checks it 150 times a day, that is not a neutral influence. It's something that is shaping us in so many ways. And all you have to do is ask the designers, the people behind it. Let me give you one example. Tristan Harris was a design ethicist for Google for several years. He left 
And this is what he says. He, he was, he's one of the forces behind all of this, right? This is what he says. It's, he's talking about the influence of the smartphone. He says, it's so invisible what we're doing to ourselves. It's like a public health crisis. It's like cigarettes, except because we're given so many benefits, people can't actually see and admit the erosion of human thought that's occurring at the same time. He goes on to say in another interview, technology steers what two billion people are thinking and believing every day. It's possibly the largest source of an influence over two billion people's thoughts that has ever been created. Religions and governments don't have that much influence over people's daily thoughts. But we have three technology companies who have this system that frankly they don't have, they don't even have control over with news feeds and recommended videos and whatever they put in front of you, which is governing what people do with their time and what they're looking at. Does that sound to you like a neutral, harmless influence? No, it's not. This little device, although it gives us incredible opportunities and blessings, is shaping the way that we live and the way that we think. We were staying at the Jasper's house last night, and this morning I had to get here to church. But I'm an ignoramus when it comes to directions. But I don't need to know anything about directions because I have a device that directs me straight to the church. And so we are finding now that our communication is governed by this. Our education is governed by this. I don't have an answer. I find it. But you know what the saddest thing of all is that our spiritual lives are now being governed by this because the vast majority of people, this is their Bible. It used to be that we had a book that had one sole purpose. It was an instrument that enabled us to hear from God. But today, almost no one, well, I'm seeing very, several people who have their Bibles, amazing. That's because Armin was always old-fashioned. <laughs> I'm not joking. So many Christians, this is their Bible. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying it changes us. One author's put it this way. Technology is not a matter of subtraction or addition. That is, it's not a matter of the blessings that it adds to our lives or the things that it takes away from us. The thing about technology, said this author, is that it is ecological. That is, it changes everything it touches. We are different. I'm not saying we're worse or we're better. I'm saying we're different because we are governed in every area of life by this little device. We're different. It has changed us. What's my point? My point is not to say again that we should not have technology, that we should not use these things. That's not my point. If you're hearing that, you're hearing the wrong message. What I'm saying is we have to open our eyes and recognize that these things are influencing how we think and how we live. This present age, my contention is simply this. This present age is using this blessed device to shape our lives, to form us in a, into a kind of person and to make sure that we're not another kind of person. 
It's not neutral. Just like consumerism is not neutral. Right? What has consumerism done to the church today? It's made many Christians into customers and the gospel into a product and the church into a supermarket. Is consumerism in itself evil? No. But it influences us. It impact, impacts us. It changes us. It shapes us. And that, my friends, this present age uses everyday events and everyday activities in order to shape us into a kind of person, in order to influence how we think. And Paul's concern is that to a large degree, all of us have been in our being continually shaped more by this present age than by the will of God. That's the problem. That's the obstacle to our transformation. This present age is an active force working around the clock to shape us into its own image. Which leads me to the final point. What's the process of the transformation of our mind? If this is true, how is it that God will reshape our minds, reshape our mentalities, reshape the structures of thought that govern our lives so that we can be transformed? Great question. I wish I had an answer. Amen. Paul says, Do not conform to the pattern of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So I, I think the answer is this. I think in order to understand what Paul is saying here about the key to the process that God uses to reshape our minds, we have to go back to the whole idea of the two stages in time, this present age and the age to come. We tend to think that the way that God transforms our minds is by adding more scripture to our lives, right? And so we say, read the Bible more, pray more, be in church more. And I think those things are obviously incredibly important. But I have a question for you. Why is it that some people know so much Bible, but their lives are so distorted? Why is it there are people who are so biblically intelligent but they don't love, they don't have joy, they don't obey. Why is it? It's because they think that merely by adding Scripture, as though Scripture were a magic pill, that that's going to change them. It's not true. If I have a warped mold, and I add Bible to that warped mold, what's going to happen? The mold is still warped, and everything that enters the mold will be warped as well. We need more Bible in our lives, in every sense. But what we need first is a new mold. We need a new system that governs the way that we think and the way we see life. And Paul says, basically Paul is saying this. We need to get rid of the mold governed by this age. And we need to put on a new mold that's governed by the age to come. To state it another way, we need to stop thinking according to the mold of the present creation, and we need to start thinking according to the mold of the new creation. Do you realize what your new reality is in Christ? 
this is one of the big problems. We don't understand our new identity in Christ. I am not a citizen of this age. I'm a citizen of the age to come. One author put it this way, one pastor put it this way. Kay and I were listening to a podcast on the way here and the guy said it and I said, oh man, I wish I would have said that. It was wonderful. We are people whose software is new creation software, but the hardware on which it runs is old creation hardware. That's exactly the point. We are citizens of heaven. We live on earth, but we're citizens of heaven. The problem with our thinking is we don't think like citizens of heaven. We think like citizens of earth. And our whole system of thinking is governed by smartphone and by consumerism and by the things of our culture around us. And Paul is saying, your problem is not that you don't have enough Bible. Your problem is that the system into which you're putting all that Bible is a system that's distorted and warped and incorrect. You need a new system. You need to begin to think and see all of life from the perspective of the new creation and not the old. As citizens of heaven and no longer as citizens of earth. I'm getting that deer in the um, headlight kind of feeling like, okay, uh, what are you talking about? Let me give you three examples, okay, to hopefully make this clearer. Three examples. Do I have time to do that? I don't even know what time I started. Let me give you three quick examples. One's not so quick, but anyway. I want you to think with me for a minute about the social matrix of the first century world. That is, I want to compare it with the new creation matrix. How is it that people in the first century, and I think it's similar today, how is it that people in the first century determined the value of a person? What did they do to determine where you fit on on the ladder of importance, the ladder of honor in the Old Test in the in the New Testament world? It's very similar to today. L- listen to listen to what one scholar wrote. He said, "Honor was a filter through which the whole world was viewed. It was a deep structure of the Greco-Roman mind, perhaps the ruling metaphor of ancient society." Another author says this. Almost all social relations in Paul's cultural context were both ordered and threatened by the competition for honor. What's he saying? This is how the social matrix worked in the first century. If you had money, if you came from a prominent family, if you had a good education, if you had contacts with people that were important and influential, you rose on the scale of honor. And your goal in life was to increase honor and avoid shame. Everything that you did in life, from invitations that you gave to invitations that you received, dinners that you went to, parties that you attended, donations that you gave, everything in life fed into that system. And your goal was to receive more honor from the people that you interacted with and avoid shame. And so, if you came from a family where one of your siblings or one of your children did something shameful in front of the culture, guess what happened? You were lowered on the scale 
of status in society. And so everything you did was a competition for honor and to avoid shame. That's the way it was. So there was a guy named Pliny the Younger. He was a Roman magistrate writing at the end of the first century. And he talks about an invitation he received to a banquet. He didn't even really know the guy that invited him, but the guy had about an equal status in society, equal level of honor among the Roman people of his time and place. So he went to the banquet, and he writes about his experience eating in this man's house. And he says, this is what the guy did. I came, Pliny, came with his entourage. They always went with an entourage, right? And he gets to the banquet, and the, the host puts them in their seats according to their status in society. So Pliny gets the best seat, and the host at his side. And then this guy arranged all of his friendships according to the scale of honor. And so he had each, each of his friends, you know, he knew exactly where they fit on the scale of honor, and he sat them accordingly. And then the part of the entourage of both parties, always there are what are called libertos, um, free men who were former slaves who were serving as servants. And of course, they were at the end. They got the worst seats. And then you know what he did? He distributed the food and the wine according to where you were on the scale of honor. Those who were seated here got all the best um, delicacies of the, of the time and of the place. And when you got all the way down to the end, they got all the scraps. And Pliny says, that's just the way they do it. That's the way in the first century world all relationships were made. All of it was based on distinctions, comparisons. How do you measure up with the people next to you? Now let me ask you a question. What happens when the gospel comes? What does the gospel do to the social matrix of the first century world? It completely rewrites all the lines. It changes everything. What does Paul say in Galatians 3.28? There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. He says... In Colossians 3.11, here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbithian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What happens when the gospel comes? The gospel completely erases the whole system. The whole social matrix is redefined. It levels all distinctions. Now, it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter your level of education. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your gender. All of us are equal. All of us are important. All of us are one in Christ Jesus because the leveling factor is Jesus Christ himself. It's not your life. It's not your family. It's not your past. It's not your money. It's nothing. What does it mean to have a renewed mind? 
To have a renewed mind simply means this, to stop thinking according to the social matrix of the first century world or the culture in which you live right here and to start adopting the social matrix of the gospel, of the new creation. Because in the new creation, in Colossians 3 and in Galatians 3, what Paul is saying basically is this. God is developing a new humanity, a whole new race of people called Christians. And in this new humanity, in this new race, all systems of honor and shame are erased and Christ becomes all in all. If you want to have a renewed mind, yes, you need to add more Bible to your life. But first, what you have to do is you need to throw away the old mold that says that these distinctions are still valid. And you need to accept the new creation model that says, in Christ, we are all one. Now let me give a brief parenthesis so that those who are sweating right now can have a little relief. I'm not saying that there does not exist any distinctions. We have distinctions in the church that are valid. We have distinctions of maturity. We're not going to take a new believer and say, you're the pastor. But it's not a distinction of value. It's not a distinction of honor. Right? We still have distinctions between the role of men and women. Again, it's not a distinction of value. It's not a distinction of honor. It's a distinction of function based on giftedness, based on calling. That's a whole different ballgame. My concern, and I think what Paul is saying, is that we in the church have taken these distinctions and turned them into distinctions of honor. And we have said, that person who comes in here would look at his clothes, look at the way he lives, look at the person with a physical disability, etc., etc. And we look at those people and we say, they are of less value. That is thinking according to this present age. Paul says, do you want a renewed mind? Do you want to think like God wants you to think? You've got to throw away that whole system. And you have to adopt a whole new system, the new creation system. Brothers and sisters, what, what does Paul say in, in Colossians 3, 1 and 2? If you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. His point is, we have been raised with Christ. We are dead. Our old life is gone. And we've been raised to a new life. There has, therefore, there are implications, really significant implications for how I live and see life. The implication, the principal implication is this. I have to have a heavenly perspective and not an earthly one. I have to have a perspective from my new citizenship, not my old one. I have to think according to the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of this world. It has to change the way that we think. It has to change the way that we see life. Second example. That was the first example. Really, this time I'm honest. It's going to be really quick. Forgiveness. How do we see forgiveness? This is a real challenge for me. But I can't, get, I can't escape what the scriptures say. Peter represents 
this present age in its view of forgiveness. Peter comes to Jesus and he says, look, I, I got to know how many times, if my brother really offends me, if he does something against me, how many times that I, do I need to forgive him? Seven times? And Peter thinks he's being real generous because the rabbi said only three times. And Peter thinks, man, I am just, I'm the, the max, you know? I'm saying seven times. And Jesus looks and says, no, Peter, that's old creation thinking. In the kingdom of God, we don't count. In the kingdom of God, it's not a matter of if is the person worthy of your forgiveness. In the kingdom of God, Jesus says, it's 70 times 7 or 7 times 70 or whatever he says there. His point is, we don't keep a record. We don't count because it doesn't depend on the value of the person in, before my eyes. It doesn't depend on whether we think they're worth it or not. What does it depend on? What's the basis of my forgiveness toward you? Exactly, It's the forgiveness that I have received from him. And he did not say, oh boy, Jim, you did it again? That's, I'm keeping record here. You're at the limit. No. In spite of all the filth in my life, he forgave me everything. New creation thinking says, I will not determine my forgiveness on what I perceive to be your worth or lack of worth. I will do it based on his worth and the worth of his sacrifice for us. It's a radically different way of viewing forgiveness. Final example. Rights, our rights. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What was happening in Corinth, it, it seems, is that in the first century world, only the rich and influential had access to the local court systems. The Roman system, by and large, was fairly just, but the local court systems were not just. They were easily influenced by manipulation by the important and the powerful and the rich. What, what seems to be happening in Corinth is that the rich and prominent and influential were dragging the less important people, the marginalized people into court, and they were winning the court cases. They were taking advantage of the people that were part of the same church because they could do it. And they knew that they had uh, power and influence in in the court system. And so Paul says this. Paul says that these people are wronging and defrauding even their own brothers. But what does Paul say that they should have done? What is new creation thinking in terms of our rights? Today we think that our rights are everything. Right? During the pandemic we saw that displayed in really ugly ways. Everyone's saying, no, this is my right to get vaccinated or not, to wear a mask or not. And everyone was standing on their own rights. And it caused division in the church, in society. In a whole host of other ways, we think that our rights are the most important thing. It's the whole abortion thing, right? My right to privacy. Are you kidding me? This is what Paul says new creation thinking does. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Is it a win-at-all-costs mentality? That's the mentality of this world. 
the mentality of those who belong to the kingdom of God is I would rather be wronged. I would rather be defrauded myself. I would rather lose in order to maintain the reputation of my church and the integrity of my brother or sister in Christ. It's a radical, new, and different way of thinking. That's what it means to have a renewed mind. Not just to add more Bible. We need more Bible. But what we need more is a new system to govern our thinking so that when we add more Bible, we're adding it to a mold that is pure and clean and right. And it reinforces the values of the kingdom of God. Let me end with this. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4, that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. Do you know what it says next? The purpose to free us from this present evil age. I end with this thought. This present evil age wants to mold you into its image. It wants to distort and control the way that you think. But the scriptures tell us that Christ died so that that would not happen. This present age has absolutely no right to control the way that you think. It has no right to govern your life. You have to resist. You have to say no. And you have to give yourself in all your strength and all your desires and everything about you. You have to give yourself to a new creation mindset. Do not let this present age mold you into its image. Rather, be transformed continually by the renewal of your mind, thinking as a citizen of heaven and not a slave on this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson from Paul that came from your hand that you call us to not be conformed, to not be shaped by this present age and the forces of this age, but rather to be completely changed, reshaped by the renewal of our minds. Because we want more than anything to be able to discern and obey the will of God. Help us to that end, we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen.